Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, NPR's Michelle Norris joins us to talk about how we talk about race and racism. I mean, a conversation about race is a conversation about, frankly, who we are as Americans, since America is such a multi-hued nation. It is a conversation about demographics. It's a conversation about identity. Norris is moderating tonight's Connecticut Forum about these issues. And how we talk about race-related issues at the center of another conversation that is going to happen tonight at Connecticut College. We're all in a very silo type of intellectual atmosphere. We'll preview this conversation with Professor David Canton. But first, let's start with something that stems from a Facebook post. Hartford resident Gareth Weston is a friend of the show, both on and offline. He recently posted a photo of himself with a story in the caption. So I came home from a bagel run, and my daughter says to me, You look like a criminal. And I was going to say something when you left. I was worried. And that kind of made me sad. Somehow, somewhere, she's gotten the impression that dressed as I was, I looked like a bad guy or someone up to no good. She was legitimately worried that someone else might have the same impressions and have it lead to a bad confrontation. If a little girl with a black dad is being subconsciously conditioned to think certain clothing on black people equates to bad people, we have a long We have a very long road ahead of us. And what was I wearing? And in the picture below I have, you can't tell, but it's a blue hoodie in my glasses and a scraggly beard. And the hoodie's pulled up over? And the hoodie's pulled up over. It was a cold day, uh, very unlike today, which is very warm. And I thought, and this was the very first time I had worn that hoodie. My wife was always telling me, pick, uh, I had a bag with three hoodies just sitting on the floor for months. And she kept tripping over it. And I decided, all right, let me pull it out and wear it. So, so this is your daughter's reaction. We're going to get to what that, how that made you feel in a moment. But, yeah. but first, had you ever thought even once about the notion that, that a black man in America putting on a, a dark-colored hoodie and pulling it up is, is something that you maybe shouldn't do? You know, up until last year, no. So I've, I've been here, I've been in this country since 1993, and I think 2014 was the first time I've ever thought of that with the whole Trayvon uh, Martin incident, uh, if that was last summer or the summer before. But since then... Almost all I do is thinking of think of that. And it's funny, the morning I left, I grabbed my keys on the way through the door and I kinda of paused and thought, should I change my should I change into a regular sweater without a hood? And I just shrugged it off and went out the door. And so I do find myself thinking about that more often now than ever before. Every single time I take out an article of clothing, how does this make me look? Do I need to wear it a certain way? Do I need to stand up straighter? Uh, can I not slouch in this bar- article of clothing? It's going to make me look some foreboding. So it's something I do think about a lot more than I've never thought about before. Uh, how did it make you feel that this was your daughter's reaction? I get a sense from your post <sighs> that it, it, it struck you in a lot of different ways. But yes. now with some time to, to consider this, how did it make you feel? <sighs> Nervous. I guess is what it all distilled to. When, I, when she first said that, I felt shocked, angry, uh, a little bit scared. But now I'm kind of nervous more for her and, and, and her brother, who is uh, going to be seen as a black kid, a black teenager someday. 
And uh, what happens when he wears a hoodie? Uh, right now, he has very curly hair. He kind of looks like his mom, his mom's complexion. But if he has a hoodie on, zipped up tight over his head, he may just look like a black kid with his hands in his pocket. So it made me very afraid for him and how do I think more about how do I control the, their perceptions? Uh, they weren't getting any of these stories from us. We don't, we don't discuss the uh, police shootings or anything like that with them, but they were definitely getting it from somewhere. It could be school. It could be overheard conversations with my wife and myself, but somewhere they were getting these notions. And we ignore what kids pick up, but they're sponges. They, they soak up everything. They may not realize it at the time, but they say something a little bit later that you go, oh, I guess they were listening, or I guess they saw or heard. So nervous is that feeling. How do I untrain her or retrain her? And uh, what effects it's going to have for her future if she has these kind of um, uh, stereotypes in her head. You mentioned your wife's complexion. Yeah. Uh, she's she's white. Yes. And, and you're, you're black, but you are also not from this country originally. Talk about that. Exactly. So I spent my first 16 years in Jamaica, and Jamaica is a country which is – I'd have to say maybe 95% white, uh, 95% black, sorry. And then the rest is a mix of uh, Indians, uh, European whites, and uh, a lot of Asians. So I grew up in a place where all the police were, looked just like me, all the politicians looked just like me, all the businessmen looked just like me. So there was very little, if any, uh, racial prejudice. Uh, you weren't pulled over because you were driving while black. You weren't uh, not hired because the manager, the hiring manager, uh, was a different race you weren't discriminated against based on your color of your skin. Now, we have social classes where you were discriminated against. Um, <clears throat> if you were from the poorer neighborhoods or just looked poor, uh, people would tend to look down on you. But I never thought about the race or the color of skin um, until several years after I got here. So even moving to this country in 1993, about 20, 22 years ago, I never really thought much about the color of my skin. I what, went to, what, cha- what changed that? What changed that? The first time I was working at, let's see, I came here in 1993, and I think in 2001, I got a job at Circuit City. It was a salesperson's job. And I remember a customer came in. They were looking around, and I went up to them and asked them if they needed any help. And they adamantly said, no, they needed no help. They're just fine. I walked away, and maybe I walked away about five feet, They turned and went right up to a white salesman and said, hi, I'm looking for something and I need help. Mm. So within my earshot. So that was kind of the first trigger that, hey, this is something going on here. You know, because I got to admit, I was a little bit naive. You know, you hear about the race problems in America, but I had never experienced it up until that point. That was my very first instance with any kind of uh, racism or, or bias or you know, I tried to think, maybe I just smelled bad, uh, <laughs> you know. But the uh, after the sale went through, the salesman came over and said, you know, I saw you go up to him. And, you know, I, I think this guy was, was racist. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that started the thought. And maybe a year after that, I was thinking about it some more. And then it kind of died out. And I never really thought about race much until I married my wife. And then when I had kids. So at those two stages, I started thinking about different things. Interracial marriage when we got married and then interracial marriage with mixed kids when we when we had our children. I've often said on this program, we've talked about issues like this, that one of the, the barriers for understanding is people can say, I understand or I want to understand as much as possible. But unless you literally, literally walk in somebody else's shoes, yeah. you, you just don't know. Yeah. 
a conversation we've often had is that I, as a white man in America, just don't know what it's like to walk down the street as a black man in America. Yeah. Uh, another layer to that conversation is the interracial marriage, is yes. to be in a relationship uh, where <clears throat> it's right there for everyone to see everybody. Can you just talk about how, the difficulties in that and in some of the ways perhaps in which it's not difficult that, that, uh, that are just part of everyday life? I, I think it's just a part of everyday life. It's not difficult. I don't think, I don't think we've been affected by being an interracial couple, but we do, or at least I do, notice looks. We walk through the mall, and uh, mostly from older people, we get these kind of disapproving looks. And I've been pointing them out to my wife. She she hasn't been paying attention to it, but I, I, I tend to see it. The other thing we get is from black women, I will get the nasty looks. Mm. And that's probably a whole other conversation, but there is a sense of betrayal there that I get from black women. And I was talking to one of my friends, uh, black female friends, about this, and she said, "Yeah, you know, what are black women not good enough for you?" So that's the kind of disapproving look that I get with a white wife. And then we get the general disapproval, disapproving look or angry look sometimes from uh, older white men and women. Younger people don't seem to have a problem with it. Mm. So that's been the extent of it. And it's great. We live in Hartford that has a lot of blacks. I don't know if we lived in the South, if we would see more overt racism. Um, but for now, it doesn't really, doesn't really bother us. But, but it, it, it bothers you in the sense that you're, you're now confronting these issues as yeah. it comes to raising your kids and raising kids who will be seen as black and as white, yeah. having to live in, in both worlds and having to probably confront racism, I would assume, with their friends from both sides of the yeah. of the. Of, of the divide, right? And, and you know what's funny? Uh, I've, I've read articles about this and I've seen, you know, little postings on Facebook when they have videos of kids of different colors playing together. Kids aren't inherently racist. They don't seem to care what color the other kid is. Uh, my daughter's had some runnings with other girls at her school, but it's typically over clothes. You're a girl. You should be wearing a skirt. Uh, you should have dress-up shoes, that kind of things. But they have white friends. They have black friends. And no one has said anything that I know of, overtly racial. They may repeat something they hear their parents say. And I think one or two times that's happened where a kid has said something but doesn't really understand what he's saying. Um, But so far, they're kind of insulated from it. Some of their best friends are white. And um, I don't think it's a problem now, but I do think it's going to be a problem as these kids grow up and start to, I won't say find themselves, but identify with different cultures, maybe look more at their parents' culture or a musical culture or something like that, and then have that interfere or interact with, uh, con- control their interactions with other kids. I do think it m- must be a problem in um, in high school. That's kind of what I worry about, or middle school, uh, especially when you throw hormones in there and, and kids are growing and changing. But for now, they're lucky enough that I don't think they've had any um, racial issues. But it is something in the forefront of our minds, you know, how are they going to be perceived? And do you think about the conversation that you probably will have to have with your son at some point, maybe when it comes time for him to drive, about how a young black man in America, no matter uh, how well-dressed he is, no matter what he looks like, no matter who his friends are or what neighborhood he's in, how a young black man in America might be perceived by uh, uh, officials, uh, law officers, police. We've actually talked about that because I have have a routine and my wife's shaking her head. I've been pulled over several times and I have only gotten a ticket once that was tossed out. 
And I think it's 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 in part due to what I do when I get pulled over. My routine is this. The lights flash behind me. I pull over, turn off the car, put the keys on the dash, put uh, my hands on the steering wheel and all my windows down. And I wait for the cop to show up. And you can see their demeanor change. They get out of the vehicle. They might have their hand close to their hip or on the butt of their gun. And as they come over, they relax a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's specifically why I do it. I want them to feel relaxed. They can see everything in my car. I have tinted windows, so I put them all down. They see where my hands are, and they know that the car is not going to suddenly drive off because the keys are on the dash. And that's what I do. And a couple of my friends says, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. And that's true, but my whole goal is to get home. I'm not out to fight some kind of racial battle right there. That's not the the time for it. And I'm probably going to be on the losing end, so I'm not going to get an attitude. I'd rather have something happen to me that's illegal and I sue the police force afterwards. I'm not going to fight them. I don't want to die in a street corner. I'd like to get home. But it is sad that that's what I have to do, and it's worked spectacularly for me. I've been pulled over a lot, and a relaxed cop is easygoing, and you're just going to get off with a warning. And that's but, what I do. But does it you, – you, you seem so calm about it. Yeah. And it's funny, It's in part it's because it's your demeanor versus my demeanor, right? Yeah. So my demeanor is such that the notion that I would have to act like that, yeah. I would have to do something special to get fair treatment, galls me to no end. It, yeah. makes, me, it makes me angry. It makes me want to lash out, yeah. right? But yeah. you, you seem to have a very different attitude about it. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I'm, I've, I've, I've faced a lot of um, adversity in Jamaica, mostly in, in terms of, being poor or crime. So I've learned to relax and learn to worry about the stuff that I can change and just don't worry about the stuff that I can't. I know the interaction I have with a police uh, police officer isn't going to change anything. If they happen to be racist, they're going to be racist after I drive off. There's nothing that I'm going to say or do that's going to change his opinion. One thing I can do is make them calm. And everybody gets stressed. Everybody makes mistakes. But when a police officer with a gun makes a mistakes, you know, a life could be lost. So to me, it makes sense. Let me make this guy relax. I don't know him. I don't assume he's racist, but I'm going to do what I can to help him uh, treat me fair and send me home. Make this a five-minute stop, not a 30-minute stop, and you know, not a 15-minute stop with an ambulance called. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, I want to get home, and I'm not fighting any battles here. It's sad, and it's, it should be unnecessary, but I think it's just a reality that we live in. And that's what I do to get by. I, I want to turn back to the, the the post that you wrote, and I'm wondering if you can just take us through the process of deciding to write that. Because yeah. as you as you told me afterward, uh, a lot of your friends on Facebook are white. A yeah. lot, I'm sure, are black. Um, and you had some reservations about writing this and putting this out for the world, and probably yeah. even talking to me about it because, well, it, it does it can really stir things up. Yes, it can. It's 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 difficult to talk to my white friends who aren't as enlightened as you, they tend to see, some of them tend to see a lot of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement as just complaints with no real substance. And I know on my Facebook feed, there are a lot of postings about Black Lives Matter and a lot of these little slogans that say uh, inspirational things. And I get the sense that some of them are annoyed by that. You know, all right, shut up about it. All lives matter type thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have a Facebook argument with anyone. But this was just so 
you know, in my face, so shocking that I figured, let me let me just let me just put it out there. Maybe they need to know because it's not about me. It's 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 about my child and what society is teaching them about me and other people who may look like me. So I said, all right, from that perspective, let me put it out there. Maybe someone will have a discussion with their kids and and, um, it may start a conversation. And I thought it would just disappear in the feeds. And then a lot of people liked it. And some people asked, you know, can I share this? This this I want to show everybody this. And I was surprised. There were people out there that were legitimately interested. And I think maybe only two of the people who shared it were black. Most of the people were white. So they wanted to pass it on to their to their friends. And I I felt I felt a little bit good about that. I, I, you know, maybe a little, you know, a little step can generate more steps and it can generate some change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're glad you glad you put this out. there. I'm glad I put it out there. I'm glad I put it. I don't I don't know if I'll put it out there again. I figure I'll do one of these posts a year. Otherwise, <laughs> I'll feel like I'm complaining. Um, but I am glad I put it out there. If if even one other person, one other family uh, decides to talk talk to your child about something um, like this, you know, it's a win. Mm. It's a win for me. Gareth Weston is a Hartford resident, and he's a friend of WNPR. And we'll have a uh, link to his Facebook post on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Gareth, thanks so much for coming, and I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. When we come back from our break, NPR's Michelle Norris joins us. She curates the Race Card Project and will be moderating tonight's Connecticut Forum on Racism. Later, Connecticut College professor David Canton joins us to discuss another related event happening tonight on free speech in the light of protests throughout the country. You can join the conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live, also on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. The moderator of tonight's Connecticut Forum in Hartford about racism is well known to NPR listeners. Michelle Norris was the longtime host of All Things Considered. She now curates the Race Card Project, which collects six-word essays on race. She's been on our program before to talk about this project, and she joins us now to preview tonight's Connecticut Forum conversation. Michelle Norris, welcome back to Where We Live. Glad to be with you. The first thing I want to ask you about is the title of this forum has to do with race and racism. And I've been thinking a lot about that, and I've had a lot of conversations on my show about those two topics. And I guess I'm wondering, first of all, can you tell me what you think is the difference between having a conversation about race and a conversation about racism? I'm glad you asked that question because people often co-join those two ideas, and they really are different. I mean, a conversation about race is a conversation about, frankly, who we are as Americans, since America is such a multi-hued nation. It is a conversation about demographics. It's a conversation about identity. It's a conversation about reaching across bridges or talking across differences. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that is immediately you know, uncomfortable or toxic. A conversation about racism, now that's different. You know, that's a conversation about bias, whether it be institutional bias or individual bias. It's a conversation about, you know, sometimes about history, sometimes about where we are right now. So when people are sometimes invited to participate in a conversation about race, one of the reasons I think that they so often recoil immediately is because they think, oh my goodness, this is a conversation about racism, and they're two very different things. So when we're actually talking about racism in America, let's go to that very uncomfortable topic. 
what are the things that you think we are talking about appropriately in the public forum? And what are the things that we're just skirting around that you don't think we're actually addressing the right way? We are, when I say we, like the big capital W, we, you know, collectively <laughs> as a nation, um, are engaged in a, in a conversation about racism because it's sort of, it is in the air, it is in the news. It is a conversation that is hard to avoid if you pay any attention at all to the news cycle. So there are some things that we talk about because of big seismic events or because of protests or because of things that, um, sort of noisy events that merit our attention. What we don't necessarily talk about are some of the things that are sabrosa, that are smaller, that are beneath the surface. So we don't necessarily talk about institutional racism and the way things came to be. It's not often by accident that people live in racially segregated or racially isolated communities that are underserviced in terms of health care access or educational opportunities or job opportunities. You know, there are all kinds of studies that tell us that your zip code can determine, unfortunately, your destiny. You know, what kind of education you're going to have, what kind of, what is your likelihood to be employed or to wind up in jail. And we sometimes think that these things happen sort of by accident, that the planet's just aligned in such a way that these kinds of things happen. And, and, and no, in many cases, it's because of decisions that were made at very high levels. It's because of decisions that were made sometimes within communities about who gets access to credit and who doesn't, about whose resume gets put on one pile as opposed to the other. You know, someone whose name is Enrique applies for a job for more than a year, can't get a job and changes his name to Henry on his resume and makes no other difference and suddenly gets all kinds of callbacks. So we're not necessarily talking about those kinds of things. And I think as a nation, one of the things that we sometimes, well, I'll amend that, John, and say, yeah, what we often struggle with is talking about the fact of history and the truth of history when it comes to our very difficult history around racism. So I guess those would be two examples of things that I think we, we sometimes have a hard time as a, as a country and as a community getting our arms around. You know, I, I got a chance to sit down on stage and have a conversation in front of a large audience with ta Coates a few months ago. And I've told my audience on my show that since that conversation, I've become a bit of a Coatesian in the way that I view history and racism in America. It is very much a view that suggests that the institutional racism over many hundreds of years is what leads us to this day. One of the primary criticisms of Mr. Coates's view, though, is just how bleak it is, that perhaps there is no real path out of that in at least the near term, maybe even in, in our lifetimes. Do, do you share some of that sentiment that while he is so incredibly right about the way that he views institutional racism, there's perhaps a bleakness, a lack of light in that conversation that might make it hard for us to move forward? I, too, have sat on stage with him and, and you know, and sometimes tussled with him over some of these issues. And what, what he says is that, you know, he does the research and he lays out the facts. And then he expects people to take from that what they will. But he's not the person who's necessarily going to prescribe the path forward toward the sun. That, you know, that's not he will take you this far. And then he hopes that people take that history and take those facts and takes the information that he provides and do something with it. But he's not the person as a journalist who's going to say, so here's what you should do in that next step. And so, yes, while the history may be bleak and, and unsettling, 
I actually, you know, maybe it's because I'm I'm a Minnesotan and so there's, you know, optimism is just <laughs> sort of baked in my DNA. When you look back at history, whether it's history of wars or famine or, yes, racism, yes, it's bleak. But just as when you drive, you are informed by that rearview mirror. You you know, you understand where you're going if you have some perspective and looking at that rearview mirror. I think the same is true of life, that as you move forward, if you understand the history, that you can move forward in a much more informed and maybe even courageous way. I mean, one of the – if your listeners have not read Ta-Nehisi Coates's um, Atlantic cover story on the case for reparations, I, I recommend it. Um, whether or not you agree with whether African Americans in America deserve reparations, you know, set that aside. What he does is he, he really explains housing policy in America and how our neighborhoods came to look the way they did and how, you know, one person of color moving into a neighborhood would change the FHA ranking for that entire neighborhood uh, downward, you know. And so he he explains all of this in a way that, wow, when you look at that, suddenly there's a lot, you know, a lot of it explains a lot of what we see in America. And sure, that's bleak, but it helps you understand um, housing policy and education policy, policy and the unemployment rate and and the incarceration rate in so many places. That so you know, yes, all of those are bleak things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we are hopeless um, just because we look back and understand the you know rather jagged areas of our history. We're talking with Michelle Norris, who's special correspondent for NPR, curator of the Race Card Project, and moderator of the Connecticut Forum's panel on racism. If you want more information about that panel discussion, ctforum.org. And this is where we live. One of the things that I think we've alluded to already is that these conversations and the, the facts of history are very, very uncomfortable for many people. I'm wondering if you can put that up against some of the conversations that are being had on college campuses today in which some of these same issues of institutional racism, about equality and the way people are treated, are coming up, but they're, they're bringing up something that's actually quite a bit different. It's a conversation about how comfortable we should be airing our views and how comfortable we should be talking deeply about some of these subjects on a college campus. It seems to be, Michelle, adding an entirely new layer on top of the larger conversation about race and racism that we're having in America. And it gets to it from a younger standpoint and from a standpoint that people like you and me who have spent a lot of time in journalism maybe don't have firsthand understanding of. Can you talk a bit about how that's how that's changed the conversation a bit these last few months? Well, I'm not sure it's new. You know, I think it's erupted, and so we must pay attention to it. Attention must be paid because there are these campus protests and there are hunger strikes. And, you know, an entire football team says we're not going to show up on the field on Saturday yeah. unless you listen to us and, 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 you know, pay attention to these issues that are very important to us. The issues, though, not, are not important. And through the Race Card Project, I spend a lot of time on college campuses. And I hear a lot of this, but in quieter spaces. And it seems that one of the things that has led to the protests that we've seen in many of these schools is a sense of students not necessarily feeling like they have a sense of belonging on campus. They feel like they're in the community but not of the community. And in many cases, they feel like there's not a, a space where they can have the conversation. And so they force the conversation by taking to the quad, by taking to the streets, by lifting up protest signs, by, you know, forcing the conversation that in some cases university officials have avoided or have not, have maybe not have leaned into in a way that left the students feeling like they were heard necessarily. So it's not that they're new conversations. It's a moment, I would say, of opportunity now 
because it is on the table. And the question is, what do these individual schools do with that? But, you but, know, now that they look into, you know, and, and try to really understand what are the roots of this discomfort? What led to this protest? But, but I wonder if because of the nature of some of these protests and the way the conversations have been had, there's a fear that the very thing that you and I are both acknowledging that we need to have, which is a, a real open, honest, sometimes ugly and difficult dialogue about these issues, that that now carries with it its own pitfalls, that indeed the the notion of saying what's really on your mind to get at the heart of something might be viewed by some on a college campus or even, you know, in a boardroom as being offensive or hurtful, that the notion that we just all speak our minds so that we can get at bigger truths might be subjugated to the notion that we want to keep people safe and comfortable in their space, if, if you get my point. I do. I do. And I think you're on to something, John, because at the moment where perhaps people who are in leadership positions are sort of called upon to lean into discomfort a little bit and engage in these conversations or create a space for these conversations, the natural natural impulse in many cases is to say, ooh, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, that looks dangerous. It looks toxic. It's fraught with peril. So let me avoid that. And so at the very moment where that kind of leadership is needed, it's easy to understand how people might recoil from that or just try to take a different path. But I posit this, that it seems in trying to understand the roots of these protests on these individual campuses, it seems like that's exactly what led to the protests, the notion that the university wasn't addressing some of these these topics, that the students felt like they were not being heard, or that the conversation was taking place in social media, you know, in a place which is a minefield of its own, rather than, you know, in a space for a university. And it's really, I understand that it's hard to get your arms around something like this, because the most productive conversations about race are usually the ones that you don't know about, because they happen in quieter spaces. They don't happen in sort of big mm. public forms. But in order to understand, again, I keep saying the roots of these issues, you have to examine them. And one of the things that you have to be willing to do is to expect discomfort, probably get comfortable with discomfort, and understand that you don't do it just once. You don't sit down and have, whether that's, you know, in a boardroom or an auditorium or in a dorm room, wherever you do it, you know, we're going to be doing on December 3rd there in Connecticut, that you don't do it just once and expect, okay, well, we've done that, it's over, um, we've dealt with that topic, and let's move on. You know, whenever I talk to people about race or identity or talking across difference, I always tell them, don't expect closure. Because it's not that we're going to sit down and have this conversation and everyone is going to sign on the dotted line and say we all agree with each other. You're probably not going to agree with each other. The point is not to get to the same page where everyone agrees with each other. The point is to just try to understand life as lived by someone else. And sometimes that takes more than one airing and more than one sitting. It takes a little bit of work. I love this idea of of quieter spaces. And I wonder if through the construction of social media currently, we are actually able to have these conversations in the types of quiet spaces that are needed, that almost all of our thoughts then go on to be expressed on a variety of social media so that we're not ever having a one-on-one or a two-on-two conversation about something in a room anymore. We're always having it in public, which then, of course, makes it so much more charged. Well, without filters, without context, you know, social media has 
added, in some cases, a wonderful dimension, in some cases, a strange dimension, in some cases, a scary dimension, um, in, in some cases, a necessary dimension to this overall conversation. There are lots of things that we know about that we probably wouldn't know about if not for social media and these videos that, you know, appear on our small screens. The protests sometimes spread and take fire because of social media, because people can, you know, see what's happening on one campus and it spreads to another campus or people see that they're gathering in the quad and they rush down because they want to be a part of that. So on one hand, it help, it informs us in, in some way, but information and knowledge are two different things. You know, information and understanding are two different things. And so if the conversation that takes place on social media, if that replaces the more productive conversations that people can have where you can actually engage with someone, where you can read their body language, where you can ask a follow-up question, where you have a chance to just actually engage with someone, not just talk at them through social media and, you know, in a timeline, look at their face in a little avatar in a small mm-hmm. box, but actually engage with someone. I hope that one doesn't replace the other. I hope that maybe one can enhance the other. But if the conversation, if this obviously necessary conversation takes place solely in social media, I'm not sure that that's a good thing for any of us. Of course, the panel discussion that you're having on race and racism at the Connecticut Forum has yet another overlay right now in the news. It has to do with the refugee crisis and the notion that Americans seem to be split on whether we should, as a nation, welcome in people who are running from a very terrible situation in Syria and Iraq Uh, because of fears of our own safety. How do you think that that plays into conversations that you're holding today about this issue? And and what are some of your your views on the way that we've we've looked at this so far? Because it is, I think, another really important, very interesting overlay to this question about race, Michelle. The inbox at the Race Card Project, where I collect these six-word stories about race and then where people send in accompanying essays and pictures and artifacts to explain why they landed on six particular words can sometimes be a barometer. And it, it plays out in different ways in different parts of the country. You definitely see a geographic split. The conversation is a little bit different in the South than it is in the North. The conversation is, you know, it's on, on one hand, you've got this sort of interesting juxtaposition or almost it's confusing in some ways because in some communities, it is the you know very conservative strain of the community that is raising questions about opening our doors to refugees. And at the same time, Christian fundamentalists in those communities have been most welcoming to refugee populations over time and you know throughout history. Um, you see a different kind of conversation in places that have opened their doors to large numbers of refugees in recent times to newcomers to America who come from Northern Africa, for instance. In those communities, the conversation is a little bit different because of the experience of, you know, welcoming um, Somali or Eritrean or Ethiopian refugees. And it's also interesting, and this is another case we're looking in history's rearview mirror, you know, can inform us. I mean, many people, when they talk about this experience, are talking about their own experience, you know, reaching back and realizing that, you know, my parents arrived here as refugees. My parents were interned because they were made into refugees within their own country as American citizens. It very much informs the conversation, and all this makes me think, you know, last time we talked about this, John, we mentioned this term that 
that everyone seemed to be talking about, including the conversation at NPR. We were, was often in our own headlines and in our own discussion. The idea that we were moving into some sort of a post-racial status as a mm-hmm. nation. I just heard you respond to that. <laughs> it's hard to even say that now without a side eye, isn't it? Or without, hmm, you know, what we, why did that suddenly capture our imagination? When you realize, when, when you talk about race and racism or diversity or however you want to you, you know, name it, you're not just having one conversation. You know, you're talking about college campuses. You're talking about police killings. You're talking about the incarceration rate. You're talking about access to health care. You're talking about a refugee crisis that in many ways is playing out in distant lands, you know, and across the ocean, but is a conversation and a debate that's percolating in a very robust way here in America. You're not just talking about about one thing. It's a big conversation with with lots of different complicated dimensions. Well, and I'll just say quickly, Michelle, because I know you have to go. It's everything. It's not as you list off those things, you think about global climate change and who it affects. And you think about, as you say, income inequality and the impact of police on certain communities of color. The conversation about race and racism is frankly in everything that we are currently thinking about and talking about. But I think and sometimes we don't give it the credit. You know, we separate it out and say we're going to talk about race and racism and have a very different sort of conversation. But if we frame it as this is something that is literally part of every single problem that plagues us today, maybe it's a different and better conversation. Probably, you know, because you're also talking about economic tumult. You know, people who feel like their feet don't quite touch the floor, that even though the economy is allegedly on the, on the upshot, that we're, you know, recovering, they don't feel like the economy has recovered. And so if you throw class into this, you know, there, there's yet another dimension to this conversation. But I think you're right. It doesn't form, if not everything we do, it is a backdrop for much of what we talk about. Michelle Norris, a special correspondent for NPR. She's curator of the Race Card Project, and she'll be moderator at the Connecticut Forum's panel on racism. Find out more at ctforum.org. Michelle, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks, John. Coming up next, another conversation is taking place at Connecticut College tonight. We'll preview this event on free speech and racial sensitivities on college campuses with Con College professor David Canton. It's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the national debate around immigration reform has focused in part on the policies of sanctuary cities. We'll explore these policies and how they affect our communities, both local and national. Hope you can join our conversation coming up tomorrow. Today on the show, we're talking about race and racism. We're going to shift to how we talk about these issues, though. Tonight at 630, I'll be moderating an event at Connecticut College that asks Is it racism? Is it free speech? Is it coddling? We'll be joined by UConn professor and staff writer for The New Yorker, Jelani Cobb, and staff writer at The Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf. I recently spoke with the organizer of this event, David Canton. He's an associate professor of history. He's also interim dean of institutional equity and inclusion at Connecticut College. David Canton, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, tell us about why you wanted to bring this conversation right now to Connecticut College campus. Well, I see the recent events at Yale University with the uh, the, the free speech event about the uh, Halloween costumes. It was really around the country. I think what I uh, I find is that uh, conversations are usually not uh, both sides. So, I know you know this in the, in the radio industry, the fairness doctrine. So pretty much, I think this event, we have Jelani Cobb and Connor Fristerdorf having this conversation about free speech models, what academic or higher education is supposed to be, right? Two two different perspectives. We have a dialogue, not 
people shouting one another, like you even see on the television network, but really uh, reasoned and formed conversation about this free speech uh, issue that we see that's around the, around the country. One thing that's so interesting to me, though, is is looking at this issue as really two sides to the story. And there's a lot of different ways that you could look at what we think of as safe spaces to have conversations versus intellectual spaces to have conversations. It almost seems to me, David, as though there's a lot more than just two sides. I guess I'm wondering how you feel it's been playing out on your campus and and how you viewed some of these conversations that you've been having with faculty and students recently. That's a that's a great question. Uh, you find that uh, for some for some faculty members, uh, intellectual space. In other words, that when one arrives on a campus, they might see an Ann Coulter, or you might see a Bill Maher, or you might see a Cornell West, and that as a student, and that's the culture of university life. That's the theory behind it. On the flip side, there are faculty and students and others that say, yes, we know Ann Coulter and these others can come on campus. However, there's language or microaggressions, there's other languages that certain populations have to deal with every day, even in classrooms. I think that's the debate. One side would say that uh, while I'm teaching, if, if I say a microaggression, uh, that's, it's, not, it's not hurting that person. But we're seeing across the country that words do matter. If you look at the whole Donald Trump campaign, he's just saying anything. And in fact, his ratings go up the more outrageous, he, he, the more outrageous words he say. So words do have an impact. I think now we're at a position in America we're really challenging where population is saying, listen, we, are, we believe in free speech, but there comes a point where enough is enough and people have to be cognizant of the students that they talk to in the classroom. Even when you leave the university, when you're in corporate America, that certain speech is not going to be tolerated. And a, a big question, I think, for both students and faculty then is where is the line? The, the question that many people have is that they don't want to be involved in microaggressions. They don't want to say anything that is going to be harmful to someone, but it seems unclear where that line is in 2015. Maybe it's a slightly different line than it was in 2012 or in, you know, 1992. Well, I think you're right. I think, uh, obviously, with uh, the, I mean, microaggressions first came out in 1970 by black psychologists. Why? That's five years after affirmative action passed, when now you have African Americans getting into the workforce where many whites are probably saying all type of things, um, how smart you are, I'm surprised you're articulate. Uh, and then we see with other groups, when women came in, disability folks, these other populations, uh, lesbian and gay populations came in the last 30, 40 years. But I think 40 years later, I think many of these populations, the allies are saying, listen, there's 40 years of education out there. People should be cognizant. But on the flip side, like the argument is saying, you cannot control one speech. Somebody out there is going to make this microaggression. So is it through diversity training? Is there a level of expectation that this is going to happen? Or do you empower people? How do you engage? I mean, I don't think there's a fine line. It's, it's very complicated. We see, uh, I think, Yale the other day, there's still a debate going back and forth. And I, but again, this, this event on Thursday is there to put this in this perspective, have the conversation, and then move forward. Of course, the issue of free speech on college campuses isn't just about race and about racism, but 
in our current context and everything that has certainly happened within the last uh, year and a half or so on college campuses and across America, clearly race is at the center of it. Uh, Elsewhere in the program today, I have a conversation with Michelle Norris, who is hosting uh, a forum also happening tonight on race and racism at the Connecticut Forum. And, And we were talking about how to get at some of the real issues behind racism. And an argument can be made that in order to really get the cards on the table, in order to really know where people are coming from, we need to be able to have spaces where we can say what we really think, feel, believe, how we've been raised, things that maybe make us feel uncomfortable, but we still maybe believe them. Do you think that there's a place for that right now on college campuses, David, given all of the various climates that we're talking about? Well, and I think and that's the point. I heard that with some colleagues, right? So in other words, if I'm a, a, a white male from Maine and a 90% white high school, 95% uh, heteronormative, all these other factors, when I step into the classroom, things I believe about race and racism I've learned through media, through the stereotypes from my teacher, from my minister, from my pastor, and I fundamentally believe that African Americans are, are lazy and want to be on welfare. So one argument would be, should this student be able to say that in an introduction to an introduction to American history course. Then the other side is saying, well, as an African American, I know that, you know, the certain things I know being a minority group that all white people aren't wealthy, you know, um, um, I know that I have a more critical understanding of white Americans, but I think that is the debate. The argument is that for many African Americans, if if African Americans and other groups can learn about the dominant culture in two thousand fifteen with social media, Twitter all types of facts of information. You went to an elite high school. How, on a basic level, one does not know this basic fact? So I think it's the structural K-12 education, how we teach racism, racism, the textbooks. There's a fundamental educational problem in this culture. This is why diversity, not just in college, but in high school, is so important. If 90% of white kids go to 90% of white schools, then I know my expectation for them understanding race and racism is not, I'm not very, I'm cynical. Because I know we still think racism is what individualized, the Klan, lynchings, that we know is institutionalized, and we do a horrible job on the K through 12 level on teaching this to students. So when they arrive on campus, I'm not as surprised when I hear those comments. But at the same time, I can understand if I'm, students of color get tired of it. Where is the line? So we have these discussions. You know, how much longer do I have to sit there and listen to, you know, these students saying these things? But at the same time. When they get criticized, then they shut down, get upset, and you can't have the conversation. So it, it's, very, it's a very complicated thing that we still see playing out on campuses around the country. And, of course, this year you saw something like this play out on your campus. There was a, a, a controversy around some, some comments made by a faculty member surrounding the Middle East, and it caused a, a huge campus-wide, not just uproar, but I think conversation about some of these issues. I guess months later, David Kent, I'm wondering how you feel this has played out on the Connecticut College campus around some very specific issues here. Well, we've addressed that. I think uh, we have numerous programming around these issues really since the spring, and obviously culminating with this uh, event I'm planning on Thursday. So, again, we found on campuses that having dialogues, discussions, whether intellectual or, as you say, in a safe space, is the best way, conversations, and not talking with each, with each other, not through one another. And I think in our niche-based culture, we even see this on our campuses. We all hang out in groups that 
we think the same way, and we learn the skill how to talk to one another. And also social media plays a role, whether it's Yik Yak, Twitter. We're all in a very siloed type of intellectual atmosphere and having dialogues with each other, not with each other is the best way. And that's why this event is so crucial. You have two individuals who are different perspectives having a conversation, which can serve as a model, hopefully not only in Connecticut College, but across the country. And this is the best way to go forward. Uh, last question for you, David, and I'm going to be interested to to talk with both of these individuals and, and hopefully hear from a lot of students uh, there tonight as well. Has your mind changed on any of these issues over the course of the last year? I mean, have you found yourself questioning deeply held beliefs that David Canton has had for some time? Uh, well, really, just had me, uh, well, obviously serving in this administrative role, uh, you really have to... Uh, you see both sides, how these issues play out. But I guess as a historian in me, I'm always one about contextualizing. So on the one hand, I can see the free speech argument, right? If it's not threatening, but at the same time, serving as administrator, talking to students, you know, how words do have, have desperate impact on students. So I guess, I guess uh, like I'm taking this kind of middle road, but really, again, seeing both sides of the issue, I know for me personally, I've worked on and and identified being reflective on how do I engage students from different populations and the work it takes to develop what I call value-free discourse. So, for example, I'll give you the last point. I'm six foot seven, African-American male. So people always ask that I play basketball. My question is, how about asking a question, did you play sports? Did you, do you play sports or what sports did you play? How do you develop a language that is, that is value-free? It's something that I try to educate myself on and my students. David Canton is Interim Dean of Institutional Equity and Inclusion at Connecticut College. He's sponsoring this free speech discussion happening today at the college with guest speakers Jelani Cobb and Connor Freidersdorf. And I'll be moderating that event. Uh, David Canton is also an Associate Professor of History at Connecticut College. Good to speak with you, David. Thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you this evening. You can find out more information about tonight's event at wnpr.org slash where we live. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.